Hello, what is up? Welcome to the Selby is Godcast. I am TJ Zuppi. He is Zach Meisel. We are from The Athletic Cleveland, theathletic.com. Good afternoon, Zach. How are you, my friend? Doing well, TJ. We're getting close. We're getting close. Well, you sound super excited about it, that's for sure. If I, if I had to to say what just one adjective for however you sounded just now, excitement would probably be right there at the forefront. I am trying to conserve all my energy because my wife has been home sick all week with the flu. Oh, boy. Um, and I just like, yeah, sure. Let's get the flu right as I head off to Arizona and, <laughs> you know, start – this eight-month grind, um, that'd be a, a really good way to start. So I'm trying to just stay low-key. I'm just popping airborne gummies every 30 seconds and uh, trying to stay healthy. Well, I'm glad we're not in the same room for this podcast then. Uh, I saw something on Twitter, I think it was yesterday, that it's exciting, but it's also scary in the same regard. It was something to the effect of this is the final week without baseball until we get to the end of the World Series. Starting next week, we have baseball. Now, it's not real games and just spring training, but there's baseball going on. Guys are gearing up for the season, and then there's the regular season and the playoffs. And that's exciting because we've been sitting here talking about like nothing for the past three months. But it's also kind of scary to think about, oh, oh yeah, like this is going to go on for, for quite a while. And we envision the Indians playing for a while, too. So, yes, it's exciting. It's also... I guess sort of smart that you're you're slow playing this because you gotta have a lot of energy to make it all the way through a regular season and a postseason. Yeah, you know it's intimidating. It's 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 a it's just there's it's like you it's like we're climbing Everest starting next week, and we've been resting up from last year's climb of Everest for the last few months, and it's it's funny like my friends and I we like to go to Vegas a couple times a year. And this off season, we weren't able to do it because I had a honeymoon and then um, the winter meetings and then it's just, just, it hasn't worked out. And so they're all trying to plan, well, what if we made a trip in April or we made this trip in May or how about August for your birthday, Zach? And I'm like, I'm pretty much, it's not going to happen for me between February and October. Like, um, it's just, it's just crazy to know that. And it's weird to say this because everyone else is like, well, we work regular jobs where they go 12 months a year. But it's just – it's like every single day you're going to be thinking about the Indians. Like it would be really nice if the baseball season was just like four days, Monday to Thursday, and then Friday to Sunday everyone took a little hiatus. Can we maybe – maybe that's what we'll uh, <laughs> yeah, we sneak I'm, into the I'm, sure, I'm sure people listening feel really sorry for us to have to watch baseball <laughs> for the next uh, 10 months and beyond. Um but it's, it is a daily grind, and I understand why, Zach. Every time they say we're taking it one day at a time, you have to because when you look at it that way to say, oh, crap, it might be November on the calendar before I get to see my wife again uh, and see my child and my second child. I might get a brief respite in the middle of the season to have a baby, and then it's right back. So uh, it's a little daunting when you think of it that way. And, and, it's, and we're not even doing anything. We're just sitting here watching. Yeah. Imagine for a player it has to feel that, that same sort of excitement, yet it's the, it, the, everything you've built towards, here it is. And if things go well, you're going to be playing for a really long time. It's so different than a football season, too, where 
like if you cover the Browns, you know you have 16 consecutive weeks or 16 out of 17 where you're covering a game. And you've got a few days a week in there too where you've got availability and you're, you're writing every day for those four months without a doubt. But then you get a breather and then you get the combine and then you get a breather and then you get the draft or free agency. And you know what I mean? Like it's more regimented where baseball's just like, it just vomits up eight months of daily activity and then you just completely shut down and absolutely nothing happens for four months. So it's like, I wish there was a better balance, but I guess that's why the season's set up the way it is because it rewards those who can who can make it through that grind. That's why it's a marathon, right? That's yeah. what I've been told. Uh, but we do envision the Indians playing into October, and so does Pakoda today putting out their projections, and you can check them online. I know many people have already tweeted about them, but they foresee the Indians winning 97 games. Not exactly a surprise. Tops in the American League. Uh, Central, and really you look around the, the rest of the landscape, no big surprises from Dakota in their projection system, although Royal fans still upset uh, to this day because the pro- projections have never been kind to them, even when they were going to the World Series and eventually winning it all. So projections aren't the end-all, be-all. They are what they are, uh, but still kind of a reinforcement of everything we've talked about this winter. That the Indians, for all of the things they've lost and for all of the the gloomy days that have accompanied a lot of the free agent signings still got a really good team. And according to Pakoda, second best team in the American league. Yeah. You know, I mean, these rankings are, or these projections, they're projections. I mean, it's, it's, you can put as much stock into them as you want. I think you can look at this and it reinforces what you believed about teams. Um, but it, you know, it, it doesn't, doesn't mean much and it's I, I get so fed up when people you know we, we share these because they are we we get so caught up in the off-season minutia because there's what else is there to do where a lot of Indians fans think that the team is going to win 80 games this year because they lost Santana and Shaw and Jay Bruce and and could they win 80 games yeah a lot of stuff would have to go wrong they'd have to have a lot of pitching injuries but I think it's this kind of reinforces the idea that yes, they are still good, and more so, they play in such a shitty division. I mean, I think a lot of the reason why they're projected 97 wins is because they're also projected to be the only winning team in the AL Central, and they'll get to beat up on Detroit, Chicago, and Kansas City 57 times. So, yeah, I mean, it's this. I'm so glad the off season is ending because. We can finally, like we've, I feel like a broken record. We'll finally have tangible results. We'll finally have stuff to talk about. And we'll finally be able to craft our expectations based on what we actually see on the roster and on the field instead of just, well, this team won 100 games last year and got bounced in the first round. So they're already below the Yankees and Astros. And then they lost a lot of people. And the Yankees added Stanton and the Astros had a Garrett Cole, so they're way below the eye. Like, that's not how this works, and you have to kind of reset your own expectations every spring, and so maybe these give us a, a little bit of a baseline to do that. And I just think it's helpful for for those that you were speaking to that have been panicking over the way things have gone and seeing a lot of, of the free agents leave. Just a nice reminder that not only the Indians are 
what they are being good, but also the environment, as you mentioned, according to Dakota, their projections. They've got the Twins at 81 wins. That would be finishing at 500. Chicago at 73. Detroit at 68. And Kansas City at 66. Now, granted, Zach, these could change over the next coming weeks because there's still a number of really talented free agents out there. And uh, maybe the Twins, with they probably need to do, go out and sign a starting pitcher to fill in for Irvin Santana early in the year. And, and maybe that changes things a bit. I don't think that makes up the... 14 games or whatever it is in the division but these could all change drastically based on a couple of moves and you know a couple of injuries can certainly throw things out of whack too but I I think it's nice this time of year to when when things when you get so caught up in in putting everything under the microscope because you really only pay attention as a fan to to your team you don't you see some of the highlights of other teams but I mean you really focused on what your team is doing and it always seems like Unless you signed a major free agent that your team didn't do much of every, anything, I'm, I'm guaranteeing that probably 80% of teams, if not more of their fan bases, feel like their team didn't accomplish everything they needed to in the offseason. The Indians looking mm-hmm. at it where they, they play in a division where it's going to allow them to, to, to play, this, play it out a little bit. And we've talked about it a number of times when they get to the deadline that's when they can really have that eye toward what helps them the most in the postseason. Because, yes, it's a grind, and yes, it's 162 games, but that also plays in the favor of a team that just has more talent. In a short series, in 40 games, in even a half a year, some crazy things can happen. But over 162 games, you tend to believe in the teams that are the most talented, and clearly the Indians are that in this division. But they'll have an opportunity to make this club even better. And and when you get to July, then you'll have a better idea of what the, the holes on this roster will actually be. Yeah, I mean, for me, it, it reminded me how the American League is a gauntlet. I think it's a lot tougher than the National League. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's interesting, too, just you usually, usually these projections, whether it's baseball prospectus or fan graphs, they're pretty tempered. Um, you don't see a lot of teams below 70 wins, and you don't see a lot of teams above maybe 94, 95. So seeing the Astros projected to go 99 and 63, uh, I think speaks to just how much talent is on that, that roster. I think that's absolutely justified. And a lot of teams doing the opposite where they are right. tanking. They're, they're trying to lose. They're not publicly saying it, but the way they're crafting their roster is we're going to go about this the way the, things the, the way the Astros did a few years ago and the Cubs did a few years ago. So what does that create? It creates super teams at the top and the have-nots at the bottom. And that kind of plays into why you get teams projected to win 99 games at the beginning of the year. I mean, remember the Blue Jays of the 2000s? It seemed like they won 82 games for like 12 straight years. (laughs) And I think teams, front offices are smarter now where they say there's absolutely no benefit to doing that. I mean, it's, it's, we've seen the same thing in the NBA and in the NFL. You know, it's why go six and 10, seven and nine every year when you can improve your, your draft positioning and, you can give, you can, first of all, save money, use it elsewhere, and not spend on that 31-year-old free agent outfielder and just give time to some young placeholder and maybe, maybe he turns into something. Um, and in the meantime, you finish with a worse record, you just uh, swallow that pill for a few years and eventually it pays off. So, yeah, I mean, we are seeing kind of the, I don't know, the erosion of the middle class maybe. And, and so... The Indians have 97 wins here because the Tigers and Royals have 68 and 66 respectively. So 
Um, it's it's yeah, th these are interesting to me. I don't put a whole lot of stock into them. They're they're fun to read in early February because there's not much else to sink our teeth into. Um, but you know, I, I see the Angels at eighty and eighty-two, and in my mind, I think they they might be a little better than that. But yeah. This isn't going to sway my opinion one way or the other. Yeah, and it's tough because projections are based on the past two. So you look at a guy like Yonder Alonso, he makes a giant change in, in his mindset, and it, it builds in him having the best offensive year of his career. The projections aren't necessarily going to take a lot of that into account. They're just going to look at what has he done over the past three years, average that together, roll it into the algorithm, and you come up with something that's probably a, a little bit more on the – on the safe side compared to looking at what he did last year and believing that that is going to be, that is going to be the norm moving forward. So that's where you get into the danger of projections, because if a guy makes a giant shift, uh, if it's a pitcher and he decides to start throwing a certain pitch a lot more and it leads to better success or, you know, these sorts of things where you, you make an actual shift. It's not just in luck and looking at the past three years, the track record, those sorts of things. It doesn't always take that into account. So that's, that's where you look at something like the offense where you could say, ah, it's a little conservative, but maybe the pitching is, is even believing they're better than they're going to be. And clearly th they project them to be the, the best pitching staff of the American League, and that might be surprising considering they lost Brian Shaw and there's still a hole there in the bullpen. But I think it just kind of reinforces a lot of the things we, we already believed about the Indians and that them being a, a pretty solid squad. One Interesting note earlier today was a, a report that Bob Nightingale from USA Today had that the Indians and Red Sox at one point earlier this offseason briefly talked about an Edwin Encarnacion swap. Uh, and apparently the Red Sox were, were interested, but then when the Indians brought up Jackie Bradley Jr., the Red Sox said thanks, but no thanks. But any uh, surprise, shock, awe, any, any sort of feeling hearing that, that rumor from Bob? I think the surprise would come from, or maybe it's more curiosity, just if they were to do that deal. They, look, they lost Santana. They lost one of their, their big boppers in the middle of the order, a guy who provided power from both sides of the plate. And so we thought that part of the reason they signed Encarnacion was because it was insurance in case Santana left. Well, if you trade Encarnacion for, for a defense-first outfielder, you have to... to, to fill that power void somehow and I'm not I'm just I'm curious you know I'm curious when these conversations would have taken place how far along they got um I, and because of because we don't know all that I don't put a ton of stock into it just because teams talk about all sorts of stuff and so it, it's I I'm interested I would be interested to know what they would have done with the money they would have saved mm -hmm. and then also just how you know how are they going to uh, that seems like a lot to lose your number four and five hitters, guys who can combine for 70 home runs um, and, and just hope that you're getting that internal production to replace it. That That's I'm, I'm a little skeptical of, of what their plan would have been. What do you think the percentage of things that we hear, things that get reported – what, what is that in the overall things that get talked about? What's the percentage there? Because I don't think it's anything more than 10, maybe 15%. I think there okay, is... I was going to say 5 to 10. <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't think that... that Even there are times that probably we don't even grasp and understand how many players get talked about. And so when this report surfaced today, it's not surprising from that aspect. I'm with you. I think it would be interesting to see how 
the rest of it would have played out because it's not just about moving Encarnacion and that would have been the finish line. It would have been moving Encarnacion with an eye toward bringing back an asset, which, okay, Jackie Bradley Jr. is a pretty solid player. Not the offensive guy that Encarnacion certainly is, but a really good defensive player, really good base runner, creates value in other ways and is only uh, a year removed from being a five-win guy and wins above replacement. So he's a really good player, really cheap. It would have opened up flexibility financially to do what? And that's what's sort of curious. It, and the timing of this matters, too. Would it have been with an eye toward bringing back Santana? Would it have been an eye toward trying to sign Lorenzo Cain or, or make it run at J.D. Mar JD Martinez or Jay Bruce? Right. So I think there, there are a, a number of different things that would have made it really interesting. Um, the part that gets really curious for me is, and I, and I think maybe you got asked this question uh, maybe a month ago or so with the Indians, if knowing how things have unfolded now, and it's probably a little unfair to, to say that because nobody foresee could have foreseen the, the way that things have gone in free agency now, like nobody, this is unpre unprecedented. Even if you saw markets ca caving for certain players to have this number of, of talented free agents still out there as free as uh, spring training is getting ready to start is completely unfathomable and no one could have foreseen that playing out that way. But knowing kind of what you know now, do you think there's any way that the Indians would have liked the do-over on the Encarnacion contract? I don't, I mean, I don't think so. I, I think it was smart for so many reasons. Number one, they got him below market value. They got him below what he expected and wanted to get and, and was previously offered. Um, that doesn't happen very often except maybe this offseason. But they got a guy who they felt confident was going to stave off decline for a few years. And, and remember, he's signed this year and next year, and I'd be shocked if they picked up that fourth-year option. So, And if they do, it's because he's, he's still really productive. So it, it's the, the contract made tons of sense, the fit made tons of sense, and then just the fact that it's the, the insurance for – Losing Santana, I think I don't think they would. I think they would make the same decision if they had to do it over again. And I, I, I don't know. Something like we need more information on on this rumor because something doesn't quite add up. Um, you know, Bradley's an amazing defensive center fielder. Well, Bradley Zimmer showed a hell of a lot out there last season. So. Mm -hmm. Would you have moved Zimmer to right, moved Chisholm to first? Like, are are you a better team? I don't, I don't think so. Maybe you're a little bit cheaper, but you're, you're not better. I, I don't. It's it's, it's weird. Only, I, it's only a small part part of the puzzle. That's why it's almost mm -hmm. impossible to to assign any sort of analysis to it because you don't know what subsequent things that opens up. Uh, but it, I mean, it plays into a strategy that even, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it, Zach. You, we, you and I, we try to em employ this strategy when we're playing hardball dynasty, sign oh, a top boy. free agent, right? You sign a top free agent, you get the most out of him in that first year. But if you can flip him for an asset that's cheaper and more controllable, and that opens up flexibility to go do something else, isn't it? Shouldn't you explore almost everything? It, it sparks so many questions and we, and we don't know what they're, uh, what the domino effect would have been. So, yeah, there, there's no harm in exploring everything. And these GMs, like, they're not signing guys this offseason, so they have to do something to kill time. <laughs> they might as well talk trade and throw everything they can at the wall. Well, there's been plenty of time to do 
really any, anything you want this off season, but knowing that we're up against it and spring training is about to begin, that means that I have been trying to empty out the DVR and get rid of all the shows that I, I may have been recording. And one of them was uh, trying to catch up and watch all of the office. You guys talk about it constantly at the ballpark. You make references to it constantly, even though the show has been off the air for what, six years, seven years. When's the last time it was on the air? I don't even know. Well, and not only that, but the last time it was good was season five or six. So that would have been probably like a decade ago now. Okay, so that's where I'm, I'm in that realm. So you're telling me I should just stop now? I should not watch forward because it's well, not going to be as good? I mean, once Michael Scott leaves, it definitely Wait, goes what? Oh, crap. <laughs> Dude, come on. I just told you. That I have not watched the show. I'm trying to catch up with you. You've already spoiled uh, a couple of things for me. And now now this? Well, he leaves to create his own paper company. Yeah, yeah, I got past that. Thanks, man. Oh, Thanks for spoiling it. the show. Um, it, it's funny you mention that because my wife has been watching it today while she's sick. And I have I, – I, so I had, never, I had never been able to get into the office. I just didn't get it even though – I am dry and have dry sense of humor and like it should have been right up my alley. Then in sophomore year of college, my roommate had the first six, six seasons, five seasons on DVD and let me borrow them. And I skipped, (laughs) I skipped at least a week, maybe two weeks of classes and just stayed in bed and watched the every season in order twice. And, um, it was like, I was obsessed with it. And so now I've got a couple buddies who we just like we know every single line to every episode and it's 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 such a sickness. And and I haven't even it's on Netflix and I haven't even watched it in probably four or five years. You know, I catch an episode every once in a while when it's on TV, but it's it's so my wife's watching it today and like I still can recite every line. She starts watching this episode and I say, Oh, yep, season three, episode four and it's just it's crazy. So Nat, since I knew you've been going through it for the first time i was you know do you are you hooked like that do you think you'll get to that point where where are you at i still i i can make jokes in that i understand the concepts of shows i can't recall lines because i need to see a show two or three times before i can Mm -hmm. just recall the line verbatim and not have to look up what actually was said so no i'm nowhere close to to where I could make some sort of reference and then you can just spit like the entire dialogue of that scene back at me <laughs> within five minutes. I'm not on your level. Do you have a favorite scene so far? Oh, or man. episode? Uh, I enjoy, you know, I, this is kind of weird. I enjoy actually episodes where, where I, occasionally Michael does something that's really smart. Like you see that he's not always a bumbling idiot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I enjoy the rare occasions where he does something to surprise everybody by doing something extremely good. So, like the episode. Well, you did you skip season two? Yeah, I had to because the DVR accidentally deleted the entire season when I was only like four episodes in, and then I it started with season three, episode one. So I said, okay, this is this isn't quite like a uh, a fantasy realm, uh, a movie where if I miss some key part in in the second movie, I'm not going to be able to follow the, the third movie. I, I, I pick things up. I, I got it. I get Jim still likes Pam. 
but wait, there's this another girl. Oh, wait, there's a dude here. She's still engaged. I picked it all up. It was okay. okay. Well, just you're going to want to go back, and I'm pretty sure it's season two, episode seven. Um, it takes place at Chili's. It's not the Dundee's episode. It's it's a different one, and that that'll be your favorite episode because <laughs> Michael does exactly what you're you're hoping for. Like I just she was just watching the uh, I think it was Pretzel Day when Pam is keeping track of everything Michael does like during the day and he's he does absolutely nothing. <laughs> Goes and waits in line to get a pretzel, has a, a sugar sugar rush and then crashes and takes a nap, but then makes like a huge sale at the end of the day and it just makes up for everything. That's I I, I agree with you. That's a good take. Uh, or when he comes up with the golden ticket idea and then blames it on Dwight, but then it actually turns out to be a great idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was uh, a classic. Yeah, I, I, if I sat down and thought of it, I could come up with many favorite moments, but I'm only through season five now. I just finished up the finale earlier today, so now I'm into season six. And apparently it's a ticking clock it's for when Michael leaves the show, so thanks for ruining that. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to tell everybody what you wrote about your scouting series for tomorrow. I'm not going to spoil that for everybody. Just read it during this podcast for free, but I am a nice guy and I'm willing to put aside our differences and, and let you boast about the, a pretty cool thing actually that, that you've written this week for the athletic. And I know many people have checked it out and have some good things to say. Uh, but for those that uh, have not been paying attention to the athletic or have not subscribed yet, could you give us a little, uh, just a little bit of a preview, a little bit of uh, some insight into what you've been working on this week? No, cause I feel bad now. <laughs> I just ruined the office. Um, Yeah, so this really started back last June um, when right after the draft, I was talking to Brad Grant. He was the amateur scouting director for the last 10 years and basically was running point on the draft. And I I just, I, I was so intrigued by the idea that I didn't realize this. I mean, it's it's so rapid fire and like rounds. I think it's eleven through forty on day three. It's basically all electronic and it just it's like snap of the finger. Like it it doesn't even take that long to get through thirty rounds because you have basically players. You, you have your list and you you just click and take a player and click and take a player. So so you have to do the homework ahead of time to a know who might be available and b you talk to the players to make sure they'll sign with you. And I was just like, I had never known any of this and was really intrigued. So I I reached out and I'm like, Hey, you know, I want to do this behind the scenes thing on on the scouting department and the drafting process and all this, not realizing that literally after the draft happens, they have like four days where they can breathe and then they go and they start scouting in Florida. There's this giant tournament showcase and they start for the next year already like it's it's it we think that our cycle of, of covering baseball is crazy <laughs> um theirs is nuts so obviously it was bad poor timing there um so i decided it would be better to do over the off season and, and it's been you know i've just been talking to scouts and scouting directors and coordinators and other front office people and um it, it's been just interesting to know like it, it's a side that one, no one really knows much about, and two, teams don't let people know a lot about. Like, a lot of times it's difficult to get a scout on the record to talk about something. 
even even if it's a a good thing, a specific player, just because there's so much. You don't want to give away too much of your process or the things that you value when you're looking to draft players. Um, there's just a lot of a lot of little competitive advantages that teams try to find, and so it's it's been really enlightening to uh, to write all this stuff and to talk about even to talk to Cody Allen about his perspective going through the process of he was drafted twice by the Indians. Um, that's the story that's running on what's today Wednesday. That'll be on Thursday. So. It's been cool, and just looking back at all the hits and misses, and the fact that probably the most incredible thing is, you know, you 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 have an 800-player big board, and you spend your entire year scouting 800 players and memorizing all their attributes, so you can rank them and sort through the criteria you like, and you draft 40 of those players, so that's five percent, and then of those 40, you probably sign 30 to 32. And then of those 30, how many become good major leaguers? I mean, and you don't know if they're going to become a good major leaguer for years. So it's it's just the whole process is fascinating just because it's like I wrote today. Like you, you spend all this time, do all this homework, make your draft picks, and then you throw them in a time capsule and you, <laughs> you check them five to ten years down the road. You have to hope that the development is as good as your process in selecting players because – while it's important for every sport to develop your, your young players in, in baseball because they spend so much time marinating in the minors, um, that can make or break a guy. Um, and Or you can have coaches that notice something in a guy that they should be doing and you can unlock potential in a 17th round draft pick. That's what's tremendous about baseball. I was talking to... Uh, who was it last year? Uh, Daniel Robertson and Roberto Perez were drafted within like three picks of each other. And mm-hmm. they both were, uh, I can't remember what round. It were really, really late round draft picks. Um, and I even said to, to Daniel Robertson at that time, yeah, isn't that kind of cool? <laughs> you guys, not only are you both picked late, but you, you have a success story where now you're on the same roster. You're picked within three picks of each other. And it, you're you're basically almost uh, non-existent to 99% of anyone that even cares about baseball. And here you are, you're making it to the, to the major leagues. That, that's what is, is really cool to me is that it creates these awesome stories like a Cody Allen um, where, where you, you can have guys that are picked first overall, never make it to the majors, and that you can have guys that are, aren't, aren't even a blip on the radar and can go on and have Hall of Fame careers. Uh, that's what I think is, is tremendous about the process, but I can't even imagine putting myself in their shoes where where it can be that maddening. There's that much variance um, where you could you can think that this is a can't-miss guy, and whether it's injuries or something unforeseen or a guy just doesn't have the work ethic that he needs. I mean, there are just so many things that could take someone that you think is just a surefire guy and completely destroy it and and take all the homework that you've done you've spent your whole your whole year putting this this work into and throw it out the window throw it in the garbage i i can't imagine the amount of stress that those those guys must be under constantly to always churn out that sort of that sort of talent to uncover that but it also seems like just kind of reading through uh some of of your stories over the past week that not only is that maddening, it, that the payoff is 100% worth it. That 
finding those guys and to see them progress and to see them get to the major leagues and then contribute. I know even, what was it, a couple of years ago when, when Brad Grant was just was talking about, and maybe it was this, this past year when he was just enjoying seeing Bradley Zimmer. He doesn't get many chances to, to, to truly celebrate something, but to just see Bradley Zimmer make it all the way up through the major leagues and then contribute to the major league roster. You know, those sorts of moments has to make all of those long hours and all the time spent away from family worth it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's there's so much that goes into it. I mean, the life of a scout sounds terrible. I mean, to put it bluntly, like the, these guys will drive six six hours on a Monday to go watch a player, and then six more hours on a Tuesday to watch a player, and on Wednesday they'll drive three hours to a random podunk town to watch a player, and on Thursday, you know, it's it, and it never ends, especially this, this period we're in now, from February to June, when college seasons start back up and high school seasons get going soon. And like, it's, it's, it's so grueling. They don't see their families and, and you're, it's just, it's got to wear on you. And then, so that, that does help because when you do see like Bradley Zimmer entered the draft room, he, he sat in on it last year. And, and the first thing he did was go over and hug Don Lyle, the guy that, that scouted him and signed him. So yeah, you're right. Those moments are cool. Um, and you know, the Indians, they they say this, of course, because it's the right thing to say, but it's more they view everything collectively. And I, there's so much – there's a lot I want to say here. So so one ironic thing was the, the first day I sat down with Brad Grant for a while in his office was the day the Browns fired Sashi Brown. And it was so ironic to me because it was like, you know, we're, we're, I'm about to write about the importance of scouting and drafting and how that's the backbone of any franchise, really in, in any of the sports. And it's the same day that Sashi Brown was fired because he didn't do a good enough job of that. And so, look, the Indians have had, they had a, a really brutal stretch for almost a decade uh, in the early part of the century. And they just could not churn anything out in their early picks. And it, it really crippled them. It made life really, really tough. It's why they had... Years where they were, they won 95 games in, in uh, or 93 games in 2005, but it was it was hard to sustain anything because they didn't have more kids coming up or more kids that they could trade for veterans. So it, it's so critical, and that's why, like you know, you can read tomorrow in in the Cody Allen piece, he was a 23rd round pick, and he was pitching in the majors a year after he was drafted. Yeah. And so those are the ones, you know, the guy who scouted him. For, for the first few years of his, his collegiate career before he transferred to North Carolina is the same scout who signed sound scouted and signed uh, Francisco Lindor. And so he's super proud of Lindor, but that one was not nearly as difficult as, as being able to trust what you, you scouted and, and what you liked in, in Cody Allen and, and encouraged you to recommend him as, as your 23rd round pick. So it's, it's, and it's a collective effort so that, yeah, the scouts are motivated. They go through that grueling process because there is a chance that they can have that moment where they watch Bradley Zimmer make his debut or they watch Cody Allen pitch in a playoff game. But it's also good for, I mean, they have some younger scouts on staff who it's like, okay, I want to be that. I want to be that guy who signs Lindor. I want to be that guy who signs Cody Allen or, or uh, Jason Kipnis. And, and so they look at it collectively because you don't know for a long time if, if – that player's going to pan out. And, and there are so many things, like you mentioned, like that, that variables that can get in the way of that. So it, it's, 
it's it's not an exact science. It, it's really really difficult, and uh, it's just I don't know. It, it's kind of fascinating, and and it's it's nice to know. You know, we we think it's crazy the strides they've made, the strides that technology has helped them make, and, and to think that years and years ago they're just using index cards that have the players and some information on them and they put them in the order that they want and they're like okay we're gonna go with this guy because his index card is next it's like well now you can actually use algorithms and you can use a computer database to sort your information and choose what preferences you have what criteria you value more and it's you know baseball has been so good especially recently with adapting with technology and i think this is one of the ways a lot of teams have made strides is because it's, it's so much easier to to kind of just order what you are looking for in, in these prospects. Now, on these index cards, are they color-coded like green means go, like go ahead and stay away from this topic when you're talking to that player? Sorry, that's an offense reference. Um, <laughs> <laughs> any big misconceptions or, or surprises as you were kind of going through this that that this kind of helped you to understand better? Yes, one surprise. Uh, I was point, pointed to this by a rival front office member who said, <laughs> go look at the Tampa Bay Rays in 2011. They had 10 of the first 60 picks, and the only one who is halfway decent is Blake Snell, their young starting pitcher. Other than that, the best player is Mikey Matuk, who's now the Tigers, was either center fielder. Yeah. None of these other guys you've ever heard of. And so it's, uh, I think they were using, this was in the early stages when, when teams really started to adopt technology and rely on a, a certain system in place. And they did so and just it didn't go very well. <laughs> it seems like not only through the scouting process and, and you would know this better than me, but also pretty much in everything that the Indians do. Um, they're somewhere near the, the head of the class in being able to blend the, the old school with the new, new school. Uh, because I don't think you can just look at a player's stats, look at the measurables and know everything about them based on that. And it was even something that the Chernoff talked about, uh, during the the winter, when they were discussing looking at guys that changed their approach, that changed their mindset at the plate, maybe changed their swing a bit, that it wasn't just in looking at okay, this guy hit more fly balls, so we know he can we can trust that because it was also something that he was tangibly working on. They also looked at scouts that studied the swing, that studied the physical part of this. It wasn't just at looking at a spreadsheet. Um, and that kind of struck me as, as important because, you know, for as, as much as this has become about stats and putting things in a spreadsheet and algorithms and all those things, there is still a human element to this. And it seems like they've, they've done a pretty good job at almost every level, all the way up through their management and how things happen on, on the field on a daily basis of trying to blend those two, two, two ideas. Yeah, you know. It's this is the one area, especially, of an organization where you you have to rely on the traditional methods. Some and, and they they look, you know, if they're hiring a new scout, they look for someone who is adept with technology and and analytics and all that. In addition to knowing how to properly evaluate a player, but you're, you're right, you know, there, there's 
there are only so many ways. It, it's different too. I mean, it, it's it's you have Baseball America's top um, draft prospects and Perfect Game and, and all these other outlets that tell you who the best players are. So it's not so much anymore about identifying them. It's about seeing the areas. You know, if you're looking five years down the road, where might this guy be in terms of his pitch arsenal and how just what kind of acumen does he have on the mound? Does he know how to pitch and how to make adjustments, stuff like that? And then it's the off the field stuff. You want to make sure this guy is driven. You want to make sure this guy has a good head on his shoulders. And so it's it's a lot of that stuff and a lot of relationship building. And even a little bit of recruiting. Uh, I mean, just in terms of you have to make sure you, you feel comfortable with a guy signing with you before mm-hmm. you necessarily draft him in the 20th round. So there's a lot of that sort of stuff. And then once you get all that scouting input and, and you get the evaluations, that's when you, you let the technology take over and, and, and you let the, the computers run their course and, and you know the, the guys with the business degrees do their thing. But you're always going to need that first that first step, that first layer um, in this realm. And, and I think it's, it's critical. I mean, I, I, I understand when people argue that you don't really need, I mean, you can make a case that maybe pro scouting isn't as valuable as it once was, but I, I think with like the area scouts, they're critical. You, yeah. you need that, that foot in the door before you can properly evaluate which prospects might make it and which might not. I think there's I think there's definitely room for for both ends of the spectrum. And yeah. the one thing technology does, I can't remember who had this quote. It was something I read during the season, and I think it was somewhere at the athletic. Um, a front office member was saying that technology, if if nothing else, it allows these scouts that used to sit there with these notebooks and write down all of these things. You know, um, write down the the. What, how hard he threw or just sitting there spending everything, spending his entire time watching a player with his head down writing stuff. Instead, now he can actually just watch the player because mm-hmm. they're going to get all the readouts of all the measurables. Now they can actually focus on the thing that they're there to do in the, in the, the very first place, which is to kind of watch things, see verbal cues, all of the human element of that that can't be read through through just the stats. And it seems like the Indians have done a pretty good job of that, and I'm sure more teams around baseball, too, are doing that very, very well. Um, and as we know, this game is constantly evolving, so it's those that stay ahead of the curve that are typically the ones that uh, experience the most success. But uh, I'm looking forward to tomorrow's piece, and you've done a tremendous job with the, the first two uh, this week over the athletics. So if you haven't read Zach's work, I... I, I'm saying you should do this 100%. It's a guarantee. You will not regret it unless you read through the comments at theathletic.com. You will enjoy these, and I, I think you should subscribe. Uh, but I know I know one thing in particular kind of got under your skin. So I'm, I'm well, going to let you air your just, grievances. You know, and I, in today's piece about the Indians drafting process, I started out with a little tease that a certain amount of time ago they were – all ready to draft this slugger who turned into a multi-time all-star and had a really nice career or has a really nice career. Is he still active? I don't know. I can't tell you. Um, And instead they, because one of their supervisors was yelling at everyone saying, take this guy instead, take this guy instead. They took a pitcher who fizzled out in the minors. And so, you know, I was told this story and I was followed up by asking if I was allowed to know who the players were 
I was told the players completely off the record on background, and I was I was begged not to include their names. Now, you look. Our, our duty as journalists is to report what we know. However, I would not have included this example at all, except it is the perfect example for what I'm trying to show, which is the strides the front office or, or the department has made in improving their their drafting process over the years. You don't necessarily need the names of the players to know that, holy crap, they were using this really stupid card system that looks just idiotic now because they're so much better at this and they have technology to help them with the process. Of course, there are some people in the comments who are pissed off that I'm not revealing the names of these players. We've had tons of guesses. Some people are having fun with it. And then I got someone who called me a hack for including the example at all. And so, yeah, that, that kind of got under my skin. We don't, you know, when Jason Lloyd does his great reporting on the Cavs and says LeBron cursed out two front office execs, you don't implore him to ask, to, to reveal who the front office execs are or what swear words they were. But knowing that he cursed out two front office employees sheds light on the fact that things aren't so peachy keen there in Cavalier land. So just be happy that we have the examples that we have and we're able to reveal what we can reveal. And uh, if you're nice to me over a beer one day, if, you, uh, it's, if it's a Christmas ale, maybe I'll reveal it. Can we play the rhymes with game? Rhymes sure. with... Yeah, I'll just go ahead and reveal. So the player that the Indians did not draft was... What? What? Do... Zach. Zach, are you there? Crap, I think we lost him. All right, well, we'll try to get the answer to that next week. I've got... an a number of episodes of The Office to watch before Ethan wakes up from his nap. And it's always a, a race against the clock to get that done. So with important things, important matters to be taken care of, I do ask all of you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Bumpers, however you listen to podcasts, if you search the Selby is Godcast, you can find us. You can search our names too. You can also find all of the links at theathletic.com. And you can also help us out by leaving a rating or review somewhere on Apple Podcasts. We elevate ourselves up the rankings and you can listen to us next week when we don't tell you more information that you desperately want to know. This has been the Selby's Godcast. Have a good week, everybody. See you.